Welcome to High Energy Health, where together we explore the leading edge of wellness and happiness. I'm your host, Dawson Church. By choosing this time together, you're declaring your commitment to a positive mindset, elevated emotions, and a great life. Thanks for joining me for today's episode. Hello and welcome to High Energy Health. My name is Dawson Church and each week on the show, I get to have a lot of fun and I'm hoping you do too because we share the leading edge of strategies, of research, of breakthroughs that can make a real difference to your life. I know when I am in the presence of people who are insightful and have found something, whether it's in research or clinical practice that makes a difference, I listen really carefully. I often take notes. I encourage you to take notes on the show as well. You'll find a lot here to really shake up your thinking and also give you practical strategies for ways to improve your life. So thanks for being here at High Energy Health and make coming and being part of this community part of your week every day. It's a great place to turn when you're looking for positive media, positive messages and inspiration. So bookmark this page and come back here regularly. My guest today is Daniel Bergner. He's a contributing writer for the New York Times Magazine and the author of five previous books of award-winning nonfiction. His writing has also appeared in The Atlantic, Harper's, and The New York Times Book Review. His newest book is called The Mind and the Moon. The subtitle is My Brother's Story, The Science of Our Brains, and The Search for Our Psyches. Daniel, welcome to the show. Thanks so much. It's great to be here. So, Daniel, you begin the book with this riveting story of your brother's behavior and then diagnosis, and it begins a very sobering look at how we treat mental illness, what the options are, and how our society processes people who are having these kinds of issues. And I I just want to applaud you for writing the book, for writing it the way you did, bringing in your own personal story and helping us as a society ask these these big, big questions. And perhaps you can just start by, by recapping those early parts of the book and also what led you to take the steep dive into mental health. Well, thanks. It really was my brother's story that led me to write the book. It's kind of striking to both of us that it took so long for me to get there. So the story, in a way, starts in the early 1980s when my brother was put on a locked psychiatric ward, diagnosed with bipolar and bipolar with some uh, uh, psychotic aspects, really grandiose thinking. And it's important to point out, we have the hospital records. There's no doubt that in mainstream psychiatry's eyes, he was diagnosed correct. And yet, flash forward 40 years or so, and he's living a flourishing, we'll get to what I mean by that, but a flourishing non-medicated life. He was told at the time, and our parents were told at the time, that if he didn't adhere to psychiatry's diagnosis and treatment, which was 
medication, of course, that he would likely take his own life. Our parents were terrified. I was frightened. My brother was terrified. I mean, I don't want to downplay that because terror on the part of family members is an important part of what we'll talk about. Well, because my brother was an aspiring artist, pianist, musician, dancer, he couldn't do some of those things on the medications because of their side effects. So he took himself off after several years. There were definitely difficult times. We're going to talk about those two really difficult, scary times. But as I said, flash forward, he's got this flourishing life now, and it raised all kinds of questions for us about trying to think in new and more flexible ways about how we treat our minds. You know, I have to confess, I did, after reading his story at the very beginning of the book, I did actually jump ahead to the end of the book to see how the story turned out. <laughs> I was wondering what the end would be. And you know, I was also remembering a previous guest of ours, a psychiatrist named Dilip Jest, who is the president of the American Psychiatric Association, or was back then. And he has a book called Wiser. And he made very much the same point that many patients, if they aren't medicated, if they aren't consigned into this uh, diagnostic purgatory, that they do get better. And he, he mapped the trajectory of various diagnoses. He said that the tendency is that people actually get better as they get older. And that's why he called it Older and Wiser, hence the title of his book, Wiser. So it's actually not an uncommon trajectory as long as people don't get those heavy medications. Well, that's fascinating and good to hear that he said that. And I think one of the under-researched aspects of our psyches is how we do progress as we get older. It doesn't always happen, there's, but there's actually on this point one fascinating study showing that with bipolar, there is a tendency to age out of it. Now, I want to be careful. I don't want to be heard as preaching against medication. There are many people who rely on it. There are many people who get better from it. I'm just bringing a message of expanding our sense of what's possible and expanding our sense of how to go about interacting with and helping people who are dealing with psychiatric challenges. Um, I think we're not doing a good enough job of being flexible. We're kind of locked into uh, conventional medicated protocols because we're afraid because we're afraid and would prefer to manage risk rather than interacting genuinely with people as individuals, people like my brother, people like Caroline, whose story I tell side by side with my brother, who has been through terribly frightening times, but again, lives a very flourishing, meaningful life now, having charted her own path when conventional psychiatry's path was not working for her. So when did you first question it? When in your brother's trajectory did you first begin to wonder if there might be another way that you could go? And again, you're in that fear, you're in that initial diagnosis, shock, you're being guided by professionals who, again, only have a very limited range of options they're offering you. There is very fearful scenarios of what will happen if you don't follow them. What began to produce cracks in that picture for you? So... I think the cracks began almost right away. And again, I'm going to go back to the early 80s, and that may seem to some of your listeners like a long, long time ago, but we are living in that era. That is the time that 
defined the way we think of our psyches now. And here's what I mean. It was around that time or just slightly earlier, late 70s, when the way we currently think took hold, that is, our brains are biological matter, our brains are organs like any other in the body, and we need to treat them medically with medication just as if they were another organ. So what happened was my brother was on the lock board. My parents came to me with a book and said, you need to read this. And that declared that we were in the third revolution of psychiatry. And that revolution was defined by the potential of medication to cure all sorts of conditions from the common depression that so many of us wrestle with to bipolar to schizophrenia and held out this promise of medication and the idea again brains are organs like any other well my parents handed me this book and we're in this moment of family crisis and i read as much as i could and i just thought there is something too narrow here you know how when when people argue with so much self-certainty that you start to feel uneasy because nothing is that certain and you know of all things our brains are not that simple uh, and clearly understood so i think the cracks began then but then you know as my brother moved forward and as he moved into one of the most terrifying episodes, which was when he was homeless. So, you know, every family, certainly every parent's nightmare when they're dealing with mental health. I suppose I, even as frightened as I was, began to hear his own voice and his own effort to chart a path. And so even though that was a very difficult and estranged time between the two of us, I was still in some, some contact with him and just understood that he needed to find his own way. So you understood that based on the contact you're having with him. And we also know from other research that that kind of contact is incredibly important. It may seem like a slender thread. It may not seem like a very uh, strong redirect or intervention. And yet research just shows us that social contact, actually, in, in my veterans' research with PTSD, it's one of the defining differences between those that recover and those that don't. So that thread, however tenuous, may have been a very, very, very important one in his life at that point. Well, it's interesting that you say that. So one thing I did not write in the book, because it's too self-congratulatory, is his reminding me years later of a conversation we had where he asked me about a path he was going to take. And, and of course, he becomes a pastor and is a wonderful pastor now. And he asked me if that would feel okay to me because we're a Jewish family and he was about to go to seminary. And I, he recalls, <laughs> said, yes, you need to do what you need to do, what you're compelled to do. And of course, now that's worked out wonderfully. And he credits that conversation. So I just say that here to go with your point. Yes, contact, meaningful contact is so important. So if we can leap over to Caroline's story for a sec, you know, she sort of bring listeners up to speed. She's someone who's really, she's heard voices. Some of those voices are violent, telling her to commit violence, violence to her, on herself, kill herself, you know, all the harshest things. And she's heard these voices. 
child. Her advice now to parents as parents reach out to her is to remember that, as she puts it, when we're trying to control, we're not connect. And what you need to do as a family member is connect. And it makes so much sense when put that simply like you, all you want to do as a parent is just grab that person and hold on because you're so scared that person's going to do damage themselves, you're going to wind up in prison, etc. And so the locked ward is one version of that. Just get my child, adult child often onto a locked ward so that nothing terrible can happen. But in the process of doing that, you're eliminating the possibility of genuine connection And for Caroline and for my brother, it's that connection that's really the saving force. And of course, he has gone on to become a connector himself. (laughs) Very much so. So I, you know, I never know whether to give away some of the book, but I will here. Yeah, one of the things he does as a volunteer is goes on to lock psychiatric boards with young people and not only plays music, she's extremely talented at, but gets them to join in these sing-alongs. Now, sing-alongs can sound really cheesy and hokey, but they're also an almost sacred way to bring people together. So that's just one aspect of his ability to connect. Yeah, yeah. And so from the microcosm of his story, what led you to start to suspect that the whole profession of psychiatry has become very narrowly defined in terms of this very small subset of possibilities? So I had the luxury of having great preeminent neuroscientist teachers. So once I decided to do this book, once I knew that my brother wanted to collaborate, I cast a wide net and I really wanted to understand what we understand about the brain. So I got myself, I'd say, three main teachers who were very, very patient. And two of those three teachers, I would say, in fairness, would not completely agree with my assessment. They tend to lean toward the Medicaid model, but uh, they, I think, are certainly, their ideas are certainly accurately represented in the book, and their understanding of the brain is very carefully rendered in a way, I hope, that's very accessible to non-scientist readers. So, what I would, one thing I was struck by is that all serious researchers into the brain were saying to me the same thing. In the last 50 years, and some would say the last 70 years, we really haven't made strides, significant strides. We've made some strides. We really haven't made significant strides in terms of figuring out how to best medicate the brain. We had breakthroughs in the 50s, some developments in the 70s, and some will argue, I can hear the pushback, some will argue that with the medications for schizophrenia, there was a set of improvements in the late 80s and very early 90s, though a lot of people would say that wasn't really a big change. But the point remains, over the last decades, we've really stopped making progress, so much so that the big drug companies have pull back from research into psychiatric medication. So one question that just came up is, where do we go from here? If we're not improving in that area that's so central to conventional psychiatry, 
how can we think about things differently for those people who aren't benefiting by those drugs? We also have to talk in a moment about the side effects of those drugs. But in leaving that alone for a second, they don't help an awful lot of people. Some would say about 50%. So where, where can we go from here? And what are the options that those neuroscientists advocate? Those neuroscientists I spoke to are really dedicated to finding the source, the or the physiological source of our psychiatric problems, and to medicating. So I wouldn't say that those particular teachers of mine are advocating looking away, looking in profoundly new directions, but they are other neuroscientists, other psychiatrists who are. So I would turn to both Caroline and my brother as sort of wise people in this regard. So we'll talk about Caroline for a sec and her current work with a group called the Hearing Voices Network, and then also with a very interesting program to prevent suicide. Both of these programs rely not on medication, though some do take it, but it's certainly far from the centerpiece. The centerpiece is sharing. So in both cases, think of something everyone's comfortable with, which is Alcoholics Anonymous. Like people get together and tell personal stories. And of course, long, long ago, the fear was, can't put alcoholics in the same room to tell alcoholic <laughs> stories, they'll all be inspired to go out and drink. Well, that isn't what happened. In fact, many people are helped. Here, what happens is you get in a room and you're sharing your realities, which are like if you're prone to psychosis, otherwise unshared. They're your own. You're not living quite, you are living in a way in the same world. We need to get to the subtleties here, but but you're also occupying other spaces and other realities. And the rule is you can't, when you're in that circle, you can't correct someone. You can't say, no, 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 that's not true. That's not real. Because the idea is that the sharing itself is a salve that's cutting back on the feelings of alienation and allowing you to begin to construct a, a meaningful way to exist. The easier version to understand is in the suicide prevention program. So there again, you know, the thought would be, oh, no, 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 no. You don't want people really vividly saying, you know, what they're thinking of doing. That's just going to encourage someone else to go out and actually do it. Nope. The faith here, Caroline's faith, and this is a growing program. Both are growing programs throughout the United States and actually quite well established, interestingly, in Britain. The idea is whatever I say in that suicide prevention program, in that circle, you cannot, no one can call in an ambulance or call the police or call any authority. There's no intervening lab because the emphasis is on candid sharing, again, because the faith is that by connecting, by reducing isolation, I'm going to reduce the odds that I'm going to take my own life. Whereas if I put someone on the locked ward, I'm going to stop them from killing themselves for the two weeks they'll be on that locked ward. But I've only increased their isolation and sense of helplessness and thus perhaps increased and certainly the research would say not decreased the chances that I'll take my own life thereafter. Yeah, and in fact, research into whether or not people need to actually 
process or whether when healing happens, whether they can do that without processing shows very clearly that people need to process in studies of, of veterans. If they aren't able to process that, that's typically because of dissociation. They tend not to get better. If they can process and they can actually share, then they're no longer dissociating. It can be very, obviously very scary and painful to stop dissociating and really get in touch with your feelings. And research shows that that's a necessary first step in order to um, have what we call memory reconsolidation happen, for memories to reconsolidate in a healthy way. We're going to go to a break right now, but please stay tuned for more of this fascinating conversation with Daniel Bergner. We'll be right back after a break. Hello and welcome back to High Energy Health. I'm so glad you're here and you being here is part of your giving yourself this time to really dive into your own well-being, your own sense of forward movement in your life. And I'm so glad you're making this show part of your reality. Make sure you bookmark the page and come back here week after week. There are all kinds of amazing guests coming up, as well as several guest hosts who are hosting the show over the next few months. would love to have you sample their insights as well. All of that's available, and I recommend you make listening to the show part of your everyday week. For more on Dan's writing, go to danielbergner.com, and his new book is called The Mind and the Moon. I'm curious, Daniel, what does the title mean and how did you come to pick that title for the book? Yeah, so way back when President Kennedy was in his final year, it turned out, and only weeks before he was assassinated, he predicted that the power of American science would soon cure psychiatric illness and we would soon have chemical treatments for our mental health challenges. Of course, he'd also promised that we would soon get to the moon. And you would think that the moon would be a lot farther, not only a lot farther away, <laughs> physical, but a lot more difficult. A moonshot. <laughs> uh, yes. But as it turned out, of course, we were on the moon within several years, and we still really haven't gotten to what President Kennedy called the remote reaches of the mind. And and so part of the science side um, is just exploring that. And I should say that even though we've run into obstacles, even though we've run into limitations in terms of understanding uh, our minds, there are a couple of points that are worth making. One, I was fascinated to be around those neuroscientists as they burrowed as deeply as we can into our brains, our minds, our psyches. I loved that. And I hope that readers will find that just as compelling, just as novelistically charged and full of momentum as the personal stories of Caroline, my brother, and the third main character we haven't spoken about, David, who's wrestling with depression. So um, the science to me is really, really important. And yeah, it was interesting. I called the book that because there was the moon so far away and yet so reachful and there is the mind so near and yet in a sense so unreachable. The other point I just want to make about that is I don't find the stories I'm telling to be dark 
or defeatist, I actually find something really reassuring in the almost infinite complexity of our minds because we're kind of amazing beings. And if you could just reduce the mind to an organ, maybe that would indicate we weren't so amazing after all. I'm willing to exist in the amazing space. <laughs> also, as you said earlier, we are incredibly complex beings and we, our brains are so complex that there's something like 18 quadrillion synaptic connections. And so thinking that we can make a simple change here and have a simple result over there is really a model that has rarely worked. And so understanding the, the brain in all its complexity. And then the interaction between the mind and the brain is so interesting as well, because of course, there's now all this new research showing the mind creates the brain that as we think thoughts, as we feel emotions, we build new synaptic connections often very, very quickly. So this interaction between the mind and the brain and how they are affecting each other is making that complexity even greater. And so thinking that there'll be some simplistic connection that we, we can say reduce a little more of this particular neurochemical and it will produce this result is just the, the kind of approach that, again, it's, it's not holistic. It doesn't recognize that complexity. It doesn't recognize our humanness and all of the components of who we are. So I, I'm so glad you're calling attention to opening up the conversation to, to new models. One way to think of this is you asked earlier about the opinions of the my main teachers, the neuroscientists I'm, I'm now remembering one analogy he made. He said, our, our psychiatric drugs right now treat the brain as kind of a water balloon, and we're injecting a drug into that water balloon, and it goes all over the place. Once in there, we're, it's flowing all over that brain, which is why we can't be very precise about even creating the benefits, and we run into really dramatic side effects in, in some cases, which some of your listeners, whether themselves or their family members, are going to be familiar with this, It's and it's really frightening. And I, I feel like I should mention some just, you know, starkly, so people do feel less alone. Like, some of the antipsychotic drugs cause real movement disorders, like beyond tics, but real out-of-control, sort of physical, repetitive motions. They cause people to feel like they're constantly constantly like restless to the point of wanting to kind of burst out of their bodies. You know, of course, the antidepressants have tremendous sexual uh, side effects. These are these are real things that I think uh, psychiatry will have to wrestle with with humility in order to, again, fully engage with the best way forward for patients. The other thing I, I was thinking of as you were talking about brain and mind is just AI. It's on everyone's mind, right? So, and it's potentially fantastic, but do any of us really think that AI is the same as our minds? I don't think we're fully making that leap. There are probably a few people at Google, and I've seen some debates held within Google where people are maintaining an equivalence. But for the rest of us who intuitively know that those things are different, that's part of the point. That's part of my brother's point. That's part of Caroline's point. Like our minds are, I'll take a chance on a word, our minds are sacred things in a way that the physiology of our brains may not be. And these are, that's a profound difference Sir, that it's the difference again between organ and self, and ourselves are miraculous things. We need to reckon with that. 
Absolutely. And again, seeing the brain as an organ uh, doesn't necessarily do that. That simplistic view of it is going to neglect that that selfhood and everything that is contained in that. And so yeah, having either a medical professional or family members or just wise counselors who can help you expand that perspective is going to make an enormous difference. I'm so glad there are people now in the professions that are doing that. I know in the work I've been doing for the last 20 years in PTSD research, there are many in enlightened psychiatrists, nurses, doctors, especially in, in the Veterans Administration hospitals, and they're working with, with patients in whole new ways. And it's making an enormous difference to the old treatment paradigm of have someone walk in, spend eight minutes with them, write a prescription and send them on their way. So that whole that whole perspective is, is changing. And psychiatry has gone from being primarily psychotherapy in the 1950s to being highly drug oriented in the 1980s, 90s, and up to the present moment. And now is there's, there's a real, there's actually a big section of the American Psychiatric Association is arguing for a return to a much more human-centered and parasitic model. We're going to go to a break right now, but please stay tuned. You're listening to High Energy Health. My guest is Daniel Bergner, and you can find out more about his work and his writing at danielbergner.com. We'll be right back after a break. Hello and welcome back to High Energy Health. Great to have you here and make being healthy and being high energy part of your day, part of your week. We live in a wonderful world and this show will remind you week after week how wonderful it can be, not only for us as, as individuals, but also for us as a collective. So I'm so glad you're here and make sure you make listening to it part of your regular weekly routine. For more on Daniel Bergner's work, go to his website, Daniel Bergner. Com. His new book is called The Mind and the Moon. So, Daniel, go ahead and share the story of the third case history you have in the book, that of David, and what his trajectory was, and also what lessons you wanted us to think about and draw from his story. As you say, David's the third main character in the book, and I try to interweave David, my brother Caroline, so that the book is propelled and forward so that you're if I've done my job at all well, you're gripped by the stories and, and feel almost like you're reading a novel, although based strictly on on journalism. So David wrestles with depression and anxiety. And at one time the levels of those conditions were moderate. And his therapist thought, you don't really need medication. But David thought this was when Prozac was first becoming prominent, really want to try. Okay, go ahead and try. And that sends him on a journey, uh, which includes then not just antidepressants, but anti-anxiety medications, so the benzodiazepines, and kind of gets him into a more and more difficult spot because the medication isn't doing all that much for him positively. But it does, as it turns out, have really powerful effects when he tries to go off the medication. And this is becoming more and more recognized. The drug companies for a long while completely denied it, but it's gotten quite a bit of solid attention in the last few years. And the side, the effects of withdrawal can be excruciating. So the sense that his skin is burning, uh, real bouts of 
almost total sleeplessness. So you're dealing with these intense physical effects of going off medication and meanwhile wrestling with all the uncertainties that were always there with this moderate level of depression and anxiety that he once was somewhat successfully wrestling with through therapy, but now, you know, is sort of locked into this medication protocol. I should have said at the outset, David is an incredibly accomplished human being. He's a civil rights litigator who's argued in front of the Supreme Court. That's like the apex of a litigator's career. But he's so undermined that he feels like he can't think straight. He can't even advise anyone, let alone write his own legal briefs. He's overwhelmed when Trump comes in and, you know, creates the initial Muslim ban. There's a lot of civil rights activity to sort of combat that. He can't take part because his confidence is so undermined and because his skin's on fire. His teeth are on fire. It's a wild set of drug withdrawal symptoms that, as I say, is becoming more and more documented. You ask, what's the takeaway from that? I think the takeaway there is be careful. Like, if you don't really need these medications, there's probably not a good reason to go down that path. In Caroline's case, there was a clear argument for the medication. She ultimately found benefit there, had to find another way. But in David's case, and in many of our cases, you know, we, we wrestle with these things. We wrestle with moderate depression. You know, I'm speaking of myself, I'm speaking of a huge percentage of the people listening. But is medication the place we need to go? I would just say pause. There might be other ways to go that are just as promising. I hope that people take that to heart because in the studies, for example, the World Health Organization has done a number of studies comparing the U.S. to other countries. And uh, the U.S. is really unusual and unique in its rush to medicate people who have a psychiatric diagnosis. It's, it's the exception. It's the out, really outlier rather than the norm. And other countries, including some Western European countries, certainly poorer countries where there is the money to pump huge amounts of currency into medication, have other ways of treating it. And so, for example, the World Health Organization finds that in those countries, the average duration of depression is eight months, that it's often triggered by some external event, death, loss of a job, big life disappointment, dislocation. But the trajectory of depression, they find averages eight months if people get psychotherapy, which they do. And again, in, in some really large countries like Brazil, and there are many countries where medication is not the norm. In countries where people get medicated, especially the US, they find that the duration is not eight months. It's a descent into depression and often a lifetime history than of medication. So the big data from these comparative global studies really supports exactly the, the caution you're providing over here. Yeah, again, just a, worth noting, not preaching against medication. There are many, many people who are really helped. But yes, uh, it is sometimes almost hard to conceive of how different even other Western very developed countries, how differently they approach treating psychiatric conditions. So as I mentioned too quickly earlier, in the UK, the methods that Caroline is promoting here, that is basically methods of connection rather than methods of control, are quite common 
back to the drug promotion and the drug reliance, we don't even really think twice about the fact that when we're watching TV, when I watch the you know the morning news talk show I watch often, there are any numbers of advertisements for psychiatric medications. <laughs> this will save you. We are one of only two countries that I know of that allows drug companies to advertise in that way directly to the public. Because of course, what the drug company is doing is saying, hey, go to your doctor, tell your doctor you need this, your doctor will then write the prescription. This is a way to just magnify profits without much control. And we're, I think it's only two countries that allowed it. Yeah. And those normal constraints that are there in other non-commercial jurisdictions, like, for example, we're also a place where either the government or individuals pay for medications. And often there isn't that same financial incentive to overprescribe and result in what this charming word called polypharmacy, which means that like some of the veterans in our nonprofit come in and they're taking 12 medications and thinking nothing of it. So it, yeah, it, it happens in the US. It doesn't happen in a lot of other countries. And we, again, in psychiatry, people have really been advocating a step back and looking at that whole pattern of simply adding medication to medication. We're going to go to a break right now, but please stay tuned. You're listening to High Energy Health. For more on Daniel's writing, go to his website, danielbergner.com. We'll be right back for our final segment after a break. Hi, and welcome back to High Energy Health. I'm your host, Dawson Church, and I love sharing with you every week this way. Please make sure you make High Energy Health a habit. For more on Daniel's work, go to his website, danielbergner.com. And his absolutely fascinating book, it's so compelling, it's like a page turner. You won't want to put it down once you start. It's called The Mind and the Moon. So, Daniel, you've turned some horribly difficult life circumstances in your family, your brother's story, stories of people you know, into this series of just brilliant explorations and then recommendations for where we go from here. And what are some of the possibilities that you see? We were mentioning on the break that often there's a rush to medication and then more medication. So what are some of the options? So let's talk first about a somewhat modest adjustment in the way we think about things. So right now, if you come to a psychiatrist with a set of serious symptoms, in general, the reflexive response of psychiatry is to try to eliminate those symptoms. So prescribe a drug, prescribe it at a middle to high dose, and try to get rid of the symptoms. This, often the symptoms don't completely go away. And then, as for someone like Caroline, there's a pileup of medication in this sort of desperate attempt to purge the symptoms. Well, what if we thought about not eliminating, not purging, but sort of modifying the intensity a little bit so that you weren't going to prescribe a serious dose and then pile on top of that. You were going to try a dose without the pileup that might modify the symptoms a bit. It won't eliminate them, won't completely eliminate risk. It won't give you that feeling of perfect control as a practitioner but it will lessen them. And then you can try other ways to help a person 
cope. That would be a fairly modest adjustment that might go a long way toward helping people because one of the things we've got to come back to is as you increase doses, dosages and as you pile up medication, you get more and more of those almost unlivable side effects. Remember, we're dealing with patients, people who are already feeling isolated and then the movement disorders, the, the really significant tics, the feelings of, of constant restlessness, the weight gain, another thing we haven't talked about, which can be very, very significant, this further isolates the person. It's exactly what we don't want to do. So one thing to try would be calibrated medication. I want to raise something that some listeners are going to find to be just a platitude and too banal to really seriously consider, but that's service. So we all know this intuitively. When we're feeling awful, I'll just say when we're feeling depressed, because it's an easy one for me to access. Often the last thing we want to do is get up, go outside and help someone else because we're so depressed ourselves. And it's often the thing that will help pull us out of the depression. Well, Carolyn's story and my brother's story says that so powerfully. These are people who found that reaching out to others can help them find a way to navigate even the most uh, crisis, uh, the most urgent situations for themselves. Yeah, that can't be emphasized enough. I know that in the some of the brain research I've done, we show that when people are in these elevated states, when they're doing great, they're part, the part of the brain that, that handles rumination and self-obsessions. It's part of the midprefrontal cortex over here. It just dials way down. And part of the brain that handles pro-social emotions, including compassion, dials way up in intensity. As we literally see this twin effect of dialing down self-obsession and dialing up concern for others, and these things happen at the same time, and people get much, much happier. So you're right that he may not feel like helping, and he may feel as though you have very little to give, but in terms of the effects it's producing in the brain, you're getting a, a fantastic change in brain function, and that is part of making both you feel better and also changing the whole kind of social network in which you function. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's this one part in the book where Caroline is really hit bottom. She has decided to take her own life. She set a date. She knows how she's going to do it. Um, and she is rescued by rescuing someone else. And, it, you know, there couldn't be a person in a moment who where someone felt less like they had something to offer. She felt like she had nothing to offer. And yet by offering herself, she really saved two people, that other person and her own very meaningful life. So remember that, the importance of service. And I believe you're doing a huge service, Daniel, through this book and through what you're sharing. Thank you so much for doing it so eloquently in this beautifully written powerful and, and moving book, The Mind and the Moon. So for more on Daniel's work, go to his website, danielberger.com, and come back and see us again in our next episode. We love sharing with you in this connected community. And until next time, be healthy, be happy. See you then. 